a podcast one production. Well, someone um, said to me at an event last night, so you've just given up on introducing the show now, haven't you? And I was like, yes, that's Jacob's job. So <laughs> take it away, Jacob. And please take note of the feedback I gave you last week, that it's not my show that you're the laugh track of, because you do know that people have commented in our reviews that they think that makes me a narcissist. Oh, sorry. So, <laughs> sorry. Can we please make sure <laughs> that you reiterate in the intro that it is our show together <laughs> and Rosie is not a raging narcissist psychopath? Deal. Okay, I thank promise. you so much. Okay, and with those notes, introduce the show in three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Just The Gist, a weekly podcast that gives you just the gist of what you need to know about a fascinating topic selected by Rosie Waterland and explained to me, Jacob Stanley. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Jacob Stanley. That was beautiful. Thanks. I love how you um, really highlighted the fact that this show is um, a shared experience between two equal co-hosts. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of whom <laughs> craves more attention than the other. Yeah. Um, hey! Hey. So, just the gist this week. What's just the gist in your world this week, Jacob? Uh, oh, well. Makeup, skincare. The, yeah, the usual whole round Being of handsome. Christmas parties going on. I like that your life is literally Christmas parties and outfits. Yeah, 13 in a row. Um, yeah, I did a couple events in the last few days and I swear to God, all anyone wanted to talk to me about afterwards was you. <laughs> Where's Jacob? Where's Jacob? When's Jacob going to come? Is Jacob going to go to your shows? If Jacob goes to your shows, I'll buy a ticket. I want to meet Jacob. His voice is so sexy. One girl even um, made me take a selfie, but I had to bring up a photo of you on my phone so you could be in the selfie. <laughs> that was very big of you. So you've when, got fans. When is your next event? I'll come. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so... Um, if we're going to do just the gist of what's going on in the world right now, which has basically turned into, as you know, what I decide are the most important headlines yes. <laughs> in the news <laughs> in the last seven days, one of those very important headlines involves me. Mm. Can you believe it? So my new live show is called Kid Chameleon and it was announced last week and I go on tour nationally next year and I want everyone to buy tickets, please. That's been, a huge that's been a huge national headline the last seven days. So I feel like it's important I let everyone know. I don't know how I missed it. Yeah, so if you go to more talent, that's M-O-R-E talent.com.au forward slash tours forward slash Rosie Waterland. You'll find all the details. You can buy all the tickets. I'm going to all the cities and I'm going to like say some funny stuff and make people laugh a bit. Also, oh, in other huge news this week that also involves me, who says mm. I'm a narcissist, um, <laughs> I met Abby last night. Oh, from The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? Yeah, from The Bachelor. From Astro yes. Bachi. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Our she favorite. was one of the final ones. Yeah, she was the she one. She made it all the way to South Africa. South Africa. Was it South Africa? Yes, Dean's saying yes. She made it all the way to South Africa and then he mm. dumped her and then he picked Chelsea with the abs and then a few weeks later he dumped Chelsea with the abs and now he's single and he's trying to be a famous hot astrophysicist. Uh-huh. And is Abby still in touch with him? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, I didn't okay. ask her, but I doubt it. 
But yeah, she came to this show I did last night with my friend Jamila and um, she was super cute and we had yeah. a nice little chat and we posted a like taking down the patriarchy selfie and we decided we're going to be Biffles. Fantastic. Is she going to come on the podcast? Well, yeah, she basically like told me her entire plan for her episode that she has. Oh, <laughs> so, great. She's done like, all the sure. hard work. I was like, sure, come on, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure we'll get her on at some point. Okay, in other news, uh, mm. Jacob, uh, is all over the news today and yesterday that um, Australians are dummies. <laughs> <laughs> um, give me some context. Hey man. Well, I'm giving you just the gist. So apparently um, Australian um, students have dropped in like the, what are the rankings? Like the being good at being smart rankings. Uh-huh. We've dropped in those quite okay. low. And not right. that you can tell from the way I'm describing it. <laughs> Clearly, you, I'm well educated. <laughs> uni students or like primary high school students? High school. Okay. And this is what? Just standardized testing? I guess, outcomes. yeah. We're right. bad at reading and we're bad at the numbers. Uh-huh. And um, countries that we would expect to be much worse off than us. So, for example, countries with a much smaller, what do you call it? Gross domestic product mm. number are doing way better. So it kind of shows that even though we've got all this money, we're probably not using it in the right way to educate our young people. Right. Um, That's just. I'm imagining the they're blaming it on technology <laughs> and phones because they're not writing anymore. They're just using emojis and gifs to communicate, and yeah, you've right. Got a calculator there on hand anytime you need it. So why learn to do arithmetic? Um, Don't you remember when we were in school and your maths teachers would be like, I know you're not listening now, but you're not going to have a calculator whenever you need it. (laughs) (laughs) Beg to differ, (laughs) Mrs. Loferello. (laughs) Sucker. I dropped maths at the end of year 10. I wasn't an idiot. I knew I'd fail. So. I did the same. I was the first person in my high school. It Me was too. sacrilegious. Same. It was a huge deal. To. They had to yeah. have a big meeting with my uncle and it was like this whole big thing. But it was funny because the seven people who wanted to drop maths all did drama. So we just got our own little drama class of seven while everybody else was at maths. <laughs> uh, and everybody said, oh, Rosie, like you're going to do so badly in your HSC. Maths is really important. Ding, ding, ding. They're liars. You've got to just do what you like in your HSC. Then you'll do really well because guess who effing aced it? This moi. That's a French word. So. <laughs> La Didn't know you spoke from <laughs> Um, Yeah, so we're dummies. Oh, and this last bit of news. Oh, my gosh. I was reading this this morning. It's so funny. So this woman, I think this punishment is kind of harsh, TBH. She got sent to prison for 18 months with a non-parole period of 12 months. So she's going to be in jail for 12 months because she got busted lying on her resume. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I can tell by your face that you've done it because who hasn't? (laughs) But um, she got a really important job, like a super important, I think it was like security data something, analyst something. And it was in the government, I think. 
And she basically like made up her entire resume. She faked all her education. Um, she gave references. And then when people called the references, they called her and she put on voices. And so like gave herself <laughs> amazing references. And the job was a $250,000 a year job, right? Mm. She got it, got in there, did it for a month. And it was, so she got a month's salary. So whatever is one twelfth of 250000 Mm. Lucky we've got that calculator on hand that Mrs. Lofarello <laughs> said we never would. Um, what is one twelfth of two hundred fifty? That's twenty thousand eight hundred dollars. Mm. So she, you know, she before tax, she got a lot of money for that one month of work. And then after a month, it was like, wait, you don't know what you're doing, and you are not qualified <laughs> for this in any way, shape, or form. And so then. They realized, like, what the hell? And they looked into it more and realized she faked it and she got fired. But then they took her to court to, like, be like, well, you got paid $20,000 for that one month. And then she got sent to prison. Wow. And I so, guess it's fraud. Yes. <laughs> Fifi's nodding, like, yes, it is, Rosie. <laughs> you assume correctly. Yeah. Yes. But that's like mind-boggling when you consider that Elizabeth Holmes, who my mind is still blown about from mm. last week when you explained Everybody that. Everybody loved that episode. She's still roaming free yeah. while they're putting together the case against her. And then this woman here in Australia, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. just ends up in prison for 12 months. For, seemingly yeah. automatically. Well, also that like, you know, men who physically abuse women often get a slap on the wrist if that for physical violence against another person. I know you know what I want to say. Say it. It's gender <laughs> dynamics. No, that's not gender dynamics because a dude who faked his resume probably would have, you know, got the same punishment. I think really mm. it's, well, I mean, it's gender dynamics at a macro level because it's about what crimes we take seriously and what crimes we don't. So, you know, we don't really take violence against women as seriously as other crimes. For example, some white collar crimes. Where pe- okay, well, I could talk about this for a long time. But it's not important, <laughs> but that was just the gist of that woman. So uh-huh. she's in the slammer, so they mm-hmm. say. I don't think I've ever called it that, ever. <laughs> <laughs> And now it's on record. <laughs> Should we go to this week's Just the Gist main topic? Yeah, for sure. Were what there any other headlines that you feel like I may have missed? Because you know to me, to those four headlines, two of which were about me, were the most <laughs> important things in the news this week. <laughs> but you've totally dispelled the myth that you're a narcissist. I know. <laughs> um, put that in the reviews, you guys. Um, okay, are you ready? Are you ready for this one? Yes. What is it? <clears throat> this week, I'm going to be giving you just the gist on the Jonestown Massacre. Ah, yes. Now, okay. I feel like I've if heard I say term. this, you'll know what I mean. It's where the term drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. Okay, Does that so. give you any more of a hint? Cult USA mm-hmm. 70s or 80s? Yes, yes, 70s. Yep, cool. Do you know? Right. Tell me anything else you know about it. What do you think you know about it? Um, well, they drank this Kool Aid that had poison in it. So mm-hmm. I've just, you know, spoiler alert, ruin that for everyone. Yeah. Um, yes, that's there how is it mass all death, ends. we should say. So it's a big cult that had a very charismatic leader, I'm going to assume. Mm-hmm. And I'm picturing them all wearing long white robes. <laughs> You're just picturing the cult from The Simpsons. <laughs> Not going to lie. It's probably the biggest part of what I know about this case. Okay. Well, 
some of that is accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was around in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, its official name was the People's Temple mm-hmm. and it was started by a guy called Jim Jones. So mm-hmm. he was the big old leader of the whole thing. And you're right, there was a bunch of people who drank a bunch of Kool-Aid, although technically it was like a like home brand version of Kool-Aid called Flavor-Aid, but I think Kool-Aid just sounds <laughs> better, like it fits the, fits the brief better, so everyone says Kool-Aid. Yeah, so it was this church that ended up in a mass, people say suicide, but to be honest, when we get to it, you'll see that it wasn't, it was kind of forced, like generally people call it a mass murder. And it was the highest civilian casualty event until 9-11. Oh, wow. So 909 people died, a majority of which were children and elderly people. Oh. Yeah, it's intense. Okay. Okay, you ready? Where do we start? I'll just start. So there's this guy called Jim Jones, Mm. and he is preaching from the time he's young, He's one of those, uh, like, weird kid preachers who, um, you know, those churches where the people preach like this and people, like, go into tongues and they do healings and stuff. So he kind of was doing that from when he was quite young. And when he was in his 20s, in the 50s, he's preaching on, like, streets and um, going into other people's churches and preaching, like, as a guest preacher. And he's good at it. And Mm -hmm. um, eventually enough people start following him that he forms the People's Temple. So that's, like, the church he forms. Mm -hmm. And on the surface, to be honest, the People's Temple is kind of awesome. And I think this is what a lot of people don't realise about Jim Jones is that up until things started to go sour, they were quite good. Mm, I guess that is the way with most cults because otherwise who would join them? Mm -hmm. So um, he was all about the church wasn't so much a church. It was more a community that focused on like radical socialism rather than religion. Mm -hmm. I think he didn't particularly like religion because he wanted to be the God of everything. So it kind of started under the guise of preaching about God, but became more about preaching a radical new socialist way of life. Would you like to give the gist of socialism, Jacob? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be completely wrong. Well, I mean, we don't need like a, a detailed definition. You know, we're not philosophers. This is just the gist, man. Okay, this is probably closer to communism, but basically They're like kind of similar, everything is owned yeah. by everyone. Mm-hmm. So no one has more or less than anyone else. Yes. So yeah. that is basically what he's preaching. He wants everyone to be equal. He, um, at the time in the 50s, was preaching racial equality. So he had uh, one of the only churches that was integrated, mm. um, which is why they had a lot of um, black parishioners. Mm-hmm. Um, he preached taking care of everybody always. So they started really taking care of the elderly if they needed it. But of course, as is the way with socialism, it's because they would hand over all their money and their, mm. be it welfare checks or retirement, a lot of people would sell their homes and give him the money. In exchange, though, he set up places for them to live and people mm-hmm. to take care of them. And so it was this whole thing of you work and provide what you can and then you also get given what you need. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the whole premise of his 
church and he wanted, it wasn't at that time in the 50s, people were really looking into communism in other countries as a possible legitimate alternative to democracy that could possibly work. I mean, it was mm-hmm. happening in Russia and um, people didn't know it was a disaster, but mm-hmm. I mean, they it was kind of something that people were exploring. And so the concept of socialism was something that people were excited about. So the- Even in America? Yeah. So he, I thought they were like really terrified of communism. Of communism, yes, but not of socialism, which mm-hmm. was kind of like, it's not communism, it's just the good parts, but mm-hmm. it always accidentally ends up communism and then a mm-hmm. dictatorship and then mm-hmm. things go bad. Um, <laughs> that is Politics 101 with Rizzy. <laughs> and so the parishioners end up being a mix of a lot of black Americans, uh, a lot of them elderly, and then also like kind of young, white, affluent, woke people who mm-hmm. want to be really woke and, and so they join this church to like feel like they're, you know, exploring and hoping to live in a new socialist utopia. You are right, though. It was a little bit too much for Indiana, which is where they were. So Mm. they relocated to California, which um, was far more accepting of those kind of extreme leftist ideals. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did do cool stuff. Like if there was like maybe somewhere that um, a black person was refused service, like they would organise mass protests of that establishment and Mm -hmm. things like that. And, yeah, people were kind of really into it. But then Jim Jones starts getting quite paranoid because people are disappearing into the people's temple community and becoming disconnected from their families, which is always like the warning sign that they're not quite there by choice or something's a bit more intense than what you would expect. Mm -hmm. And people are selling all their possessions and just handing all their money over to the church and their families are like, what's the deal, Mm yo-yo? And so families are contacting, like, press and the police and so people start sniffing around. Like, this people's temple thing seems amazing but we think it's kind of dodgy. And so then Jim Jones is like, we're outie. Mm -hmm. And he decides that they're going to pack up everyone in the entire like community, church community, and move somewhere, like just start a utopia socialist community somewhere. And so he does some research about which places are likely to be safest in the event of nuclear war, Mm -hmm. and he finds that South America is safe. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of money because there's a lot of people who have given up everything to the church, so they buy a huge amount of land on this island called Guyana, which is Mm -hmm. in South America. And it's nothing. It's just jungle. It's literally jungle. And he doesn't want to deal with how difficult that is. So he sends all the young, strong, woke parishioners down there for about a year to build basically a town, like a community. Mm -hmm. And so they clear, like, jungle and they start building, like, infrastructure. There's like houses and a little community pavilion and a dining hall, but they're like worked to the bone. Like Mm. they get up at sunrise and they go to bed at sunset and there's hardly any food because it's not really the kind of land that you can grow crops, crops, Mm. like agricultural stuff on. And Mm. so they're eating like rice and and it's pretty effing grim. And it came out later that um, Jim Jones was really obsessed with North Korea and their methods of um, 
manipulation Manipulate, and control. Yeah, manipulating and controlling people by basically working them to the bone and mm. making them so exhausted that they can't really fight back or think for themselves. Mm. Why are you laughing? Because it's just such a effective concept, obviously. Right. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so then once there is enough basic infrastructure, Jim Jones is like, hmm, that seems not so horrible. I'll go now. So he turns up. And this is where things start to get really bad. Apparently, as soon as he turned up, his nutter level went like 10 times million. Mm -hmm. So his son says today that he was doing a lot of drugs. Like he was on like amphetamines, like candy. Mm -hmm. And so he turned up and he got his own little house in the place and he called it Jonestown because his name is Jim Jones. So there's Mm -hmm. another warning sign, don't you think? Like... It's a flag, yeah. (laughs) It's a bit of a red flag. Mm. And he sets up a PA system that is all over the community and he basically just preaches for like 15, 16, 17 hours a day. Just like (laughs) he gets drunk and he's taking amphetamines and he's just like babbling about stuff. Mm. And he's gotten very paranoid and he's very narcissistic He's a man, I think, who really likes to be um, revered and worshipped and so he needs constant attention but he also is super paranoid so he's just like spurting all this crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people start to get worried. A lot of people were saying, you know, at that point we were like, mm, this isn't the socialist utopia paradise that we thought it was going to be and we're really tired and we built this town and he turned up and he's weird and there's no food and we want to go home. But he took everyone's passports and wouldn't let them leave. Mm-hmm. And at this point, they sent for everyone else. So all the people who are still back in California, like all the old people, all the families, all the children, they all shipped into Guyana. Mm-hmm. And they were all like, yay, we're going to paradise. And then they turned up and they were like, it's just some shacks. What is this? It sounds like the fire festival. Yes, it is like the fire festival of life. <laughs> it is basically like that. And uh-huh. so they all turned up and, you know, their passports were taken from them and they were all kind of like, this is a bit not what we were expecting. But they all kind of had this dream of living in this mm. community where everybody contributes and everybody is taken care of and everybody does what they can. And it was like, you know... The socialist fantasy. And so they, they all wanted to really make it work. Mm. And I think this And how is, many roughly do you think were there? Like hundreds, there was about, thousands? There was about a thousand people. Uh-huh. By the time everyone was there, it was about a thousand people. Uh-huh. I think at this point, it's that thing with cults, like you've invested so much already, it feels too late to turn around. Like mm. you've given all your money, you've given all your time, you've probably ruined relationships with friends and family, all devoted to this thing. And so then when it starts to seem a bit weird, you need to just separate that in your brain. You need to Mm. believe that it's going to work, I think. Yes, which once again, linking back to Elizabeth Holmes and how Mm -hmm. she just kept doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. I think that she had just sold herself this idea so effectively that she was just committed to it no matter what. It sounds like these and the people around her too. Yeah, Jim Jones reminds me a lot of Elizabeth Holmes. Like, I think they're both kind of psychopaths. You know what I mean? Mm. Can I ask a question? Yeah, because I was really surprised when you said that his son made a comment. I had no point pictured that he would have kids. How many did he have? And do you know how old the kids were around this time? He had a bunch of kids because he and his wife adopted quite a few children, and they also had a few of their own. 
I don't know all their names and all their ages, but I do know that his son at the time, the one who survived, was I think late teens, maybe I think he was about 20. Right. And, and are you telling only one survived? Of his children, yeah. yeah. Oh. So I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Okay. So they're all living there and I think a lot of people want to go home. A lot of people are, though, invested in in trying to make it work, Mm. but it's not great. People are hungry. There's not a lot of food. People are working really hard. He is literally ranting at them over the PA, like, all day. He starts getting extra paranoid. So he does these things called white nights, and that is where he has become convinced that at some point the government is going to come and try and break up their community or some kind of war is going to break out and people are going to attack them. And so he wants everybody to rehearse what they will do in the event of that happening. So it could be like two or three in the morning and like you've worked from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. and like, you know, you're exhausted, you've hardly eaten and then you get woken up. And um, he just starts talking over the PA like, white night, white night, white night. And so everyone has to get up out of bed and get dressed and get their bag and they have to run to the community pavilion, which is at like the centre of the town, and then they have to sit there while he preaches at them and there's a lot of men with guns. Mm. And at this point, I was watching this documentary about it and this guy said the scary thing was at this point we realised that all these people had guns, which he insisted were to protect us, but the guns weren't facing outwards. They were facing inwards, like they were they were pointed at us. Mm. They were to stop us from leaving. And during these white nights, he would get people to practice what he called revolutionary suicide. So he would say, if things get to a point where, you know, we are either going to be forced to become part of a post-war regime that we don't want to be a part of or we can just die in the name of socialism, we should die. And so he would practice, like, and say, we want everyone to line up and we're going to give you this and you'll drink it. And a lot of people said, like, that they didn't really think that it would ever be a thing. Like, Mm. they thought that part of his preaching was kind of like the Bible, like stories are exaggerated, but it's to teach you a moral lesson. And mm-hmm. and so they thought it was just all part of his shtick. It was all part of his like theatrics. Mm-hmm. So he's doing these white nights. He's got armed guards. He's not letting anyone leave. But there are some people back in America who are like, where are our family members? And mm-hmm. they want to know what's happened. And so they're complaining to the press and they're complaining to the government. And so there's a congressman called Leo Ryan who enough of his constituents have come to him and said, our family went to Guyana and just disappeared with this dude and we don't know what's happening. And so he decides to do like a special trip to Guyana to just like check, like Mm -hmm. what's going on and why is, you know, what's, is it bad? Like maybe it's not. I don't know. Like he was very diplomatic about it. He's like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going in there to shut the place down. I'm just going in to check that the people who are there are there of their own free will Mm -hmm. and if they are, then I'll leave them alone. Mm -hmm. And so he organises a trip. It's him, a few members of the press, a couple people's family members, and he tells Jim Jones that he's coming. Jim Jones freaks out, but he does say that he can come. Jim Jones then, to prepare, starts making everybody rehearse, like, how to say that they're really happy there 
how to say that they love it there, how to say, you know, like he gets them to practice because they're going to have to talk to camera and he gets them to practice saying that it's the best place they've ever lived and they never want to leave. But he is freaking out that people are going to want to leave. And what's interesting here is the reason Jim Jones's son survived is that I think Jim Jones's wife knew that everything was about to go to shit. And he was so paranoid that he, I think he thought that this congressman was coming and it was the start of everything falling apart. And so Jim Jones's wife organized a basketball trip for a few of the boys, and one of whom was her son in the capital of Guyana. So she sent mm-hmm. them away. Mm-hmm. And he, the son said now, like, I'm pretty sure my mum did that because she knew shit was going to go down and she was trying to protect me. Well, I mean, Jim obviously knew he had something to hide and they were probably going to find out about it. And she obviously knew, hey, he's got something to hide. They're going to find it. And then this is all going to go to shit. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. So everyone's trained up. They've got to be on their best behaviour. They've got to tell the congressman that they're happy. They prepare like actual, a lot of like food. They get a lot of food together, everything they have to make it look like they have great communal meals and everything's fine. So the congressman and his kind of group land and they come to Jonestown and it actually goes quite well. Like they walk around and it's kind of like visiting a summer camp. You know what I mean? Like they go on a little tour and... Jim Jones talks to him and there's footage of this because, you know, there were some news people there. So there's um, footage of Jim Jones saying, like, I don't know why people are worried. Like, I don't know why people are persecuting us. This is just, we just want to live a beautiful way of life where everyone's equal and taken care of. And they're interviewing people who are saying, I'm so happy here. I never want to leave. This is the best. And then there's footage of Congressman Ryan giving a speech that night at like a big communal dinner slash kind of party that they have. And he's basically gets up and says, you know what, we didn't know what we were going to find here, but this is kind of nice. Like, it Mm. seems like you guys have created a really beautiful way of life. We don't want to take that away from you. Thank you so much for having me. And everyone cheers and it's like this exciting thing. But a few people over the course of that day and night Mm. do secretly slip the congressman notes saying, get us the F out of here. Mm -hmm. So he does approach those people and he approaches Jim Jones and he said, a few people have slipped me these notes. So when we go tomorrow, we're going to take those people home. Mm -hmm. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not that many people. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a town of a thousand and I think it was like maybe like 10 people or something. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think the congressman was just like, well, that's not that bad. Like, it seems fine. And so Jim Jones is like, fine, they can leave. I'm not going to stop them, whatever. Like, he says he doesn't care. And so the next day, the congressman is leaving with the press that he brought with them and the people who said they wanted to go are leaving. They leave and go to the little airport, which is just like an airstrip. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's yeah, just like a strip of grass. Um, and there are these two little, like, private planes there that's going to take everyone back to the US. Mm-hmm. And this is where... It gets bizarre because he could have just let them go. Everything went fine. And this is where people don't know if he genuinely was just so paranoid and taking so many drugs and had kind of just completely lost it that he truly did believe 
the congressman was going to go back to America, say they're effed, we need to go blow that place apart and ruin everything, like, Mm. because otherwise it doesn't make sense what happens next. So they're at the airstrip getting onto the planes, getting ready to go home. Jim Jones sends a truck full of, like, 10 men with guns. They go to the airstrip and just start shooting everyone. So, yeah. So the congressman dies, a few (gasps) members of the press die, a few people who were trying to leave die. Um, oh my God. The two planes, just the pilots are like, what the f***? So they just take off. Yeah. So whoever managed to get on the planes got, but the other people are literally on the airstrip getting shot at. So they just run into the jungle because there's nowhere else to go. At this point, that's the point of no return. Like, he, oh, yeah. He sent <laughs> a shooting squad and killed a congressman and members of the press. And so oh. this is why people are like, why didn't he just let them get on the plane and go? The congressman came, thought it was fine, was going. So this is where people say he must be nuts. But he was, the congressman was taking, what, 10 witnesses with him who once they got back to the mainland probably had a lot more stories to tell than they had actually shared with the congressman. So maybe that chances were the light was going to be shone on everything that was going on there. Yeah. But, oh, that's... So quite an overreaction. While that happens, Jim Jones knows that that's it. Like he's past the point where he can keep Guyana a thing and Jonestown Mm. a thing. So he starts doing a white night, but like for real, not Mm -hmm. a dress rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So um, he makes everybody come to the pavilion. And this is where some people, basically those who survive, know that something bad is going to happen. Um, so there's one older woman who hid under the bed in her room. Um, a couple other people took off into the jungle. There was a few people who were on that basketball trip, but this is how crazy this is. 909 people are about to die and only 33 survive. So it's not many. And so basically he surrounds the perimeter of Jonestown with armed dudes Mm. And he says, okay, we're doing the revolutionary suicide now. Mm-hmm. And the scary thing about this is, and I've listened to it and it's horrific, it's all recorded. So his preaching that he does all day, every day through the PA system, yeah. he records it on a, like no. tape records it. So oh. you can Google this and listen and it's really awful. So when people realise that it's not a dress rehearsal white night and that mm. it's he actually wants them to all commit suicide, a lot of people start arguing with him. Mm. And if you listen to the tapes, like there's this one kick-ass older woman and she's like, no, like Jim Jones, no. Like mm. why do we have to do this? Why can't we try moving to Russia? Like you said you're friends with North Korea. Let's get in touch with North Korea. We don't have to die. Like let's try and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, no, we have to do this. Like this is what the Lord wants. We all have to die. And so these tapes are just so awful. And so basically what he does is he gets his people to mix up a bunch of cyanide with Kool-Aid, like flavor aid, which is, I guess in Australia, it's like cordial. It's yeah. powder that you mix with water and it makes like a flavored drink, right? So he, he gets these huge vats and he, they mix up a whole bunch of cyanide and a whole bunch of flavor aid. And so this is why the expression, oh, drinking the Kool-Aid is kind of wrong. Because that's what you mm. say to someone who is like, 
emphatically jumped on board with some kind of concept and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to the tapes, it is quite clear that a lot of these people didn't want to be drinking the Kool-Aid. Like mm-hmm. it was either drink this Kool-Aid or these men with guns will shoot you. Mm-hmm. And what he did, which is quite awful, is he made all the parents line up with their children and so he gave it to all the children first knowing that once the children had died those parents probably wouldn't want to live oh that's so grim i know so they would give them a cup of this drink and it's not like you fall asleep and die like it's quite a violent painful way to die because you're being poisoned And so all the children go first and you can hear screaming and wailing and crying on the tapes as these parents are forced at gunpoint to give their kids poison. Then the parents all drink it. If there are people who refuse to take it, they put it in syringes and inject them with it. You can see how it's kind of inaccurate to call it a mass suicide. Uh, Yeah, somewhat. It's a mass Mm. murder, really. And so it, the most haunting part of the tapes is the sound slowly dissipating. So at first you've got, you know, 900 people mm. arguing and screaming and not wanting to do it. And then over the course of about an hour, it's kind of like the amount of people dwindles and it gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. In the end, Jim Jones, I guess after having seen how awful and painful it is, won't take drink Mm -hmm. so he gets someone to shoot him in the head Mm -hmm. and by the time it's all over there are 909 bodies that have kind of just all collapsed where they drank the drink so they're all kind you if you look up photos online it's just literally piles and piles of people just all in the grass and when you say 30 odds survived you're saying that there were still people left standing once all this was done, once Jim was gone, once everyone else had died, yeah. the guys with the guns were still... No, they they took it. Okay, yeah. right. So um, the because, only survivors were the ones who weren't there. Yeah, so while I say people were arguing and a lot of people hated it there, there were fervent followers, mm. for example, the guys with the guns. Mm-hmm. Um, so they took it, um, once everyone ha- was gone, they took it voluntarily There was also a woman who was in charge of that. They had a house in the capital in Georgetown and she was in charge of just taking care of that house. And she lived there with her three children. And she was such a zealot and like such a fervent follower of his that when the order came through to die, she went and killed all her children and then herself. And she wasn't even there. She just did it because they told her to. Yeah, so the only people who survived are the people who, like that woman who hid under her bed, so the men with guns didn't find her, didn't force her to take it. The few people who went to get on the planes and didn't get shot and escaped into the jungle, the dudes who were on the basketball trip, and like a couple other people who managed to hide or sneak off somewhere. That's Mm -hmm. it. 33 people. Wow. And the pilots, did they make it back to the US? Yes. They survived? Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's when, you know, they got to the US and it was like, what? And so (laughs) the shit hit the fan pretty quickly. And that's where all those really famous, the footage of the bodies and Mm. and because, you know, the US um, law enforcement had to go in there and work with South American law enforcement to clean up what was Mm -hmm. basically a mass casualty Mm -hmm. 
event. Grim. I know. So it's pretty intense that people people talk about it like it's a joke. Yeah. And people think that it was just a bunch of crazy people who all willingly committed suicide because they believed in some kind of crazy cult thing. Mm. But it was actually a pretty scary, murderous dude. Was that the narrative that was spun by the media for a while as a way of sort of deterring people from getting involved in cults like this? I mean, I think so. To be honest, this was probably the thing that really started people's fear of cults as a concept because mm. it hadn't really been a concept yet. Mm-hmm. And after this came things like oh, Waco, which I really want to talk about, like and David Koresh and um, the Heaven's Gate people who they also did a mass suicide, but they did it voluntarily. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, all those cults kind of came after this. And I think this storyline kind of got wrapped up in those storylines and people just look back and assume, like I always assumed Jonestown was just a bunch of crazies Mm -hmm. who all killed themselves for a a weird reason. But Mm -hmm. when you look into it, it's really sad and horrific and messed up. Yeah, scary. Yeah. Mm. So that's kind of, that's kind of it. That's what happened. The people who survived, you know, there's been a bunch of documentaries where they've given firsthand accounts. I read a book on it um, by uh, one of the journalists who was there and they all just kind of have given their account of what they say was his pretty rapid spiral into being a nutter because they all insist that it was great at first and they loved it and they really thought that they were building something amazing and in the years when they were in America, they felt part of something really important and beautiful and then when they went to Guyana, it felt a bit iffy but they were like, no, we can make this work and then he turned up and was just high as F all the time and ranting at them about getting attacked by nuclear bombs over the PA and and then this happened. Mm. High on meth and high on power, obviously. Yes, and narcissism. That's a dangerous combination. Ooh, sad story, man. I know, it's an intense one, isn't it? Mm. So... Um. <laughs> And okay, That's so you mentioned that you've read a book. Are there any good documentaries or um, anything we should wait. watch? Yeah, on YouTube, there's a great documentary called Paradise Lost mm. that has um, detailed interviews with his son who talks all about how messed up he was. It has an interview with this guy who it's so effing heartbreaking because they um, put all the kids into communal care on mm. the in the town. So kids weren't with their parents. Kids were looked after in like a childcare place. Mm-hmm. And this guy passed a note to the congressman and said he wanted to leave, but he knew that he wouldn't be allowed to take his son. Mm. Um, so he thought, okay, well, the best thing for me to do is to go back to the US and get legal help and figure mm. out how to then go back and get my son. And he's like, my son will be safe here. There's people who take care of him and, you know, whatever. And he got to the plains. They started getting shot out. He ran off into the jungle, hid for hours and hours and hours And by the time he came out, everyone had been killed, including his five-year-old son. Oh. I know. So that's in Paradise Lost. It's like intense detail. And then the... um, I can't handle watching that. The book I read was called Salvation and Suicide. 
that's really intense book. And then um, I listened to a podcast, which is where I heard the audio Mm -hmm. of what happened that day. And I wouldn't recommend it. No, <laughs> I'm no way I could put <laughs> to be myself honest, through that. I'm way I mean, too I just want because I was doing this, and I was like, oh, I should just to sort of get a bit of context and to understand it, and um, and I didn't. I listened to maybe like I just kept skipping through to kind of get the gist of, and it, yeah, it's mm-hmm. just pretty intense. But if you're interested, those are the things you can go and look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jacob. If you were at a really fun dinner party and wanted to bring the mood right down. (laughs) (laughs) Really wanted to just get everyone nice and gloomy. How do you reckon you'd give people just the gist of Jonestown? (laughs) Give it to me in a minute or less. Firstly, I've got to say the big winners here were Kool-Aid because just about everyone in the world knows the term Kool-Aid, even though I don't even have Kool-Aid in Australia. But is that a win? Yes, we don't associate it with something positive, (laughs) but we know that it exists and that is step one in marketing. I wonder if the people who made Flavor-Aid were like, yay, or oh, when they found out the name was wrong. Like, were they relieved (laughs) or jealous? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm at a dinner party. I want to make everything nice and grim. I would explain that there was this very popular preacher who had a very idealistic view of the world in the USA in Mm the 50s, 60s and 70s who built a community who started doing really, really good things until the power started going to his head. He started taking a whole lot of drugs and he decided he was going to set up his own little country or community down in South America Mm -hmm. and he moved everyone down there, became increasingly paranoid and erratic and uh, when even just a small whiff of people actually trying to leave and him losing the power and control that he had emerged, Mm -hmm. he decided to just end it all for him and everyone else involved by um, killing almost a thousand people in a very horrible, painful way. Cheers. Ta-da. <laughs> That's when everyone goes home. <laughs> Bring out the cheese board. Yeah, that's pretty much it, man. But I have to say, a lot of people don't know the de- the details. Mm. And so I'm happy to provide this service of giving you just the gist. <laughs> that was illuminating. It was fascinating. Yes. Um. Kind of grim, though. <laughs> Very, very grim. I told you we were going to hit up some true crime some weeks. Mm-hmm. So how about next week I promise to bring a slightly more chipper, just the gist. Great idea, just in the name of balance. <laughs> just in the name of balance. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it for this week. Sh- mm-hmm. Should we end on a high note? Do you want to tell me something nice? Well, we can end on a public service message. Say no to drugs. Say no, say to, no drugs. to cults. Say no to cults. Say no to anybody who names a town after themselves. <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> um, good lesson to end on, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Love it's you. It's always wise. Love you too. Love you, you all have a great out week. there. And um, yeah, tune in next week for something pleasant. I promise. Okay, bye. Thanks, Tom. Bye. <laughs>